Hello and welcome to the 33rd episode of the CCGI podcast. Our last episode featured Dr. Paul Bruno. We discussed lumbopelvic motor control deficits and Star Wars, of course. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Larissa Jurin. Dr. Larissa Jurin recently opened a multidisciplinary clinic in rural 100 Mile House, British Columbia, with a focus on medical and chiropractic co management of chronic pain in prenatal patients. Prior to this, she worked in a medical clinic as a clinician and the director of program development. Her responsibilities included physician recruitment and retention, adjunct pr- practitioner recruitment and collaboration, physician continuing education programming, medical student training, patient advocacy, and stakeholder relations. So not much, really. <laughs> Dr. Jaren graduated from the University of British Columbia in 2006 and Logan College of Chiropractic in, Chiropractic in 2009. She also currently serves as the director of the College of Chiropractors of British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Larissa. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. And and for most of our listeners, they probably don't know where 100 Mile House is. Uh, I've, I've been up there quite a, uh, quite a bunch in the past, but um, can you tell us a bit about where you practice and you know, the location itself, the setting that you're in? That's probably a really good place to start because I think most city dwellers, when they hear the word rural, actually think remote and like Disney running around in the forest with butterflies. <laughs> and there, there is some of that, but not entirely. We have a movie theater. We have a bowling alley. Um, the town is located about six hour drive from Vancouver and the town itself has 2000 people. But that's a really misleading number because the catchment area is defined as anyone who would come 200 mile for groceries or medical care or whatever, gas, things like that. And that is 20,000 people in the sort of off-peak winter season and it doubles in the summer. So between the May long weekend and the Labor Day when all the Vancouverites are coming up for their their summer cabins. So we're not a we're not a one streetlight town, we're a five streetlight town. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the the town itself, in terms of medical services, we have three medical clinics and one walking clinic. There is a hospital in town. It has 16 to 21 beds. Uh, the ER has capacity for about 10 patients, but it is completely staffed by local family doctors. So there's no um, specific ER physician. They're all GPs who are doing ER work. So when patients need uh, sort of more specialist treatment or imaging or things like that, they're sent to Williams Lake, which is about an hour north. And the closest tertiary care center where they could get anything they can't get in Williams Lake is in Kamloops, which is about two hours southeast. So we came up here really for the quality of life. And we thought that we were sacrificing sort of opportunities to be involved in leadership and teaching and and stuff like that. And we have found, surprisingly, the exact opposite. We have had so many opportunities to be involved in in teaching and leadership and stuff at a higher level. It's been really, really rewarding. So in April of this year, just a few months ago, we opened, my husband and I, I keep saying we, my husband, Andrew, is a family physician. And um, we opened a new clinic in town where we partner with two massage therapists. And in doing so, we really were, um, we'd been working here for almost three years and we kind of identified needs within the community and really felt that we wanted to work more on filling those needs. So Andrew closed his family practice. He gave it over to a new doctor and now he is focusing on chronic pain management, uh, prenatal care, mental health and addictions. He's the only physician locally who does methadone and suboxone prescriptions. And then I'm doing you know, a general chiropractic practice, 
but with a focus on, um, you know, rehab and soft tissue management of, of chronic pain patients. And within the clinic, the, the goal with this new office was really to um, see how far we could develop the whole team-based care model. So we regularly, within um, Andrew, me, and the two massage therapists, we regularly interfer, co-manage, and have informal rounds when we have patient consent about how we're, we're managing patients and what we can best do to support each other and support the patient. But uh, with Andrew's work, he's very interested in sort of the prescribing guidelines, having that um, focus on the chronic pain and, and addictions. He, he really wants to try and get people off their medications. And so looking at some of the guidelines surrounding that, the 2017 Canadian Opioid Prescribing Guideline recommends strongly that uh, patients with chronic non-cancer pain who are using opioids and experiencing serious challenges in tapering should receive for a formal multidisciplinary program. And they do include chiropractic care as a suggestion there. And so we really saw this as an opportunity to, to put that into motion and see how we could develop that really to support our patients. So that's sort of where the new clinic came from. And we've been offering, operating for a couple months and it's, it's sort of a work in progress. We, we've been trying different things and, um, and co-managing in different ways, referring back and forth for, you know, he would send me patients for a, a really good MSK diagnosis and rehab program. And I might send them back for assessment for, you know, if, if I feel further imaging or, um, potentially a surgical consult or even just injections um, for various reasons may be, may be beneficial. But even then we were noticing um, a psychosocial component that, that comes with chronic pain that, that everyone knows about. There's, there's patients feel defeated. They don't, they don't, you know, do their rehab program because they feel like they've done it before or it hasn't worked or they're hopeless and then even maybe there, there's some manipulation sometimes where they want a specific outcome from the visit, either from me or from Andrew with the medications that he's prescribing. And so we were finding that patients were maybe um, not, not adhering to their exercise program or they were telling us different things that when we were rounding on the patient would come to light and it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to really good management of them. So a new initiative that we're, that we're just setting up now, we haven't actually even run patients through it, but we're, we're building it into the schedule, is we're going to uh, set aside some time to see patients together at the same time in the same room for an hour. And the goal is going to be to really, for both of us to have a really clear picture of the patient's entire presentation. So Andrew gets a really specific musculoskeletal diagnosis. He understands sort of the goals of re rehab program. And I think most importantly, he gets uh, a prognosis from me about sort of the likely soft tissue recovery and, and where we think we can get the patient. I get the value of a really thorough medical history, um, an understanding of the medications and things that they're on, things that you know we do in our intake form, but maybe I don't take the deepest dive to in the first visit. The, the hope is also that this will help patients who wouldn't necessarily see a chiropractor by themselves to, to get that um, input and feedback and that team-based management according to the guideline that, that would really benefit them. And then after we've both kind of done our assessment and sort of talked about what we found, then we together, both of us and the patient, develop a treatment plan. And we use sort of motivational interviewing to try and engage the patient in their plan, develop something that will really work for them. 
So the goal is to improve patient adherence to their exercise program, to help them feel more supported and that they have a team of healthcare providers that are talking to each other, and ultimately to hopefully deprescribe some of their medications because they're hopefully in less pain and improve their optimism and quality of life. So that's kind of where we are now with our practice in 100 Mile. I mean, that, that's so unique. And I, I personally have never heard of that approach. You hear of co-management and healthcare providers, you know, communicating about the case, you know, away from the patient or, you know, not um, having a, a consult or visit together in the same room with the patient. So be very curious to know how that, how that works out in terms of not just adherence, but also patient outcomes uh, as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So Hopefully, well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I would assume so. But yeah, that, that's, that's a you know, really fascinating approach. Um, and and is uh, I'd, I'd imagine too. I mean, too, is there anything else you can tell us about in your experience working in a, in a rural practice setting with GPs? And and also, I'm sure there are, there are quite a few listeners who are curious about how chiropractors in rural areas can build relationships with local physicians too. For sure. So uh, we have been in 100 Mile for three years, as I said, and this clinic is a new thing since April. So before that, we were working in a family medicine clinic. So there were three family doctors and me. I, w- I would love to say that it was a merit-based um, position, but I they wanted my husband to come to the clinic. I came along for the <laughs> ride. So whatever, I made the best of it. Um, I think in terms of the, the benefits of having a chiropractor in a medical office with regards to patient care, I really can't say enough positive things about it. In terms of imaging, it just streamlined the process so much. I could access any medical records with patient permission. I could walk out and say, I need this, this, and this. And, and it would be handed to me and I bring it back into the patient office or the patient visit and, and use it to move forward with the treatment plan. So that was really beneficial. In, in a rural setting, uh, all, all health services are limited, right? It's an underserved community in every way. And so there's one outpatient physiotherapist in town. She often has quite a long wait list, often months and months. And so for, for the GPs in our clinic, it, I was basically treated as sort of the in-house MSK expert, consult. So if they had a patient who either wanted a chiro or wanted rehab or um, they had a question about the patient's MSK presentation, they would tend to refer that patient to me if the patient was willing. And then they could get in with me within like a week or two instead of having to wait months. And so it just expedited care, which we know improves outcomes. So that was tremendously beneficial. Um, I've already talked about the co-management collaborative care of patients. This was just somewhat of a larger scale, there were more doctors to connect with, but just being able to have, I don't think it can be understated how important those hallway conversations are. Because when you're out on your own as a chiropractor, you can definitely have relationships with GPs and connect with them and send them a letter about a patient or whatever. But there's, there's this formality in it. And, and it's hard to you know, you have to be so careful how you phrase it and you don't want to offend them, but you also want to tell them what you're finding and you want, and there's this, it's a cat and mouse kind of game that you play. And when you can just walk out of your treatment room, pass somebody else, say, Hey, how was hunting this weekend? Did you shoot anything? Good. I'm glad the bunnies and deer are safe. (laughs) Now I have this patient who has this and this, and they're your patient. Like, what are your thoughts? And just those, those conversations where you can just get that info and have that collaboration without making it 
a formal sort of engagement, I think was so valuable for patients and, and for me as a practitioner. Um, the, the other thing that I did a lot of was facilitating appropriate referrals. So this wasn't something I really kind of expected to be doing, but again, in a rural community, the GPs are so overworked. They are working often five days a week in clinic. They're staffing the ER 12 hour shifts, often night shifts, sometimes day shifts. Um, they are doing residential care. They're doing nursing home. They're so, so busy. And so, you know, patients come, patients go, there's referrals, there's paperwork, there's stuff that needs to happen. And maybe my patient, who really, I think, needs uh, a more expedited referral, sort of gets shuffled into the pile on their desk. And just being able to be that advocate and walk over and say, hey, like, I noticed this going on. I think it should be rushed a little bit more. What are your thoughts? They agree. We pull it out and, and get that moving a little bit faster. So I think that was beneficial. I'll give you an example of a, of a patient I had that kind of just puts all of these ideas together. I had an established patient whose family doctor was in the clinic that I was working at and they were in a motor vehicle accident. And so they had, they had booked an appointment with me just for a regular follow-up, but in between booking that appointment and coming to actually see me for the regular visit, they had this MVA. They totaled their vehicle, they had immediate neck pain, they had midline tenderness, they had radiculopathy. And so, um, you know, according to the Canadian C-spine rule, x-rays are indicated in this patient's case. I don't have time to do a full exam. I do like a really mini neuro exam, but they need x-rays. So I stepped out of the office, went over to where their family doctor was at the standing desk, and I just told him the history and what I'd found and, and asked him, like, do you want me to send them to the ER? Do you want me to tell them to book an appointment with you? Do you want to try to fit them in today? What's your preference? And he said, you know, based on what you've told me, I'll just give you a requisition. I'm comfortable with your, with your exam and your findings. So he handed me a requisition and then I said, do you want the patient to follow up with you or do you want them to follow up with me? And he said, they can follow up with you. If, um, if they're clear, then that's fine. You go ahead and do your treatment. If they're not, I'll get the report anyways, but you can always refer them back to me. So when you think about if I wasn't in that office, I would see this patient, I would either send them to the ER, or their doctor, they would have to wait up to a week to get a visit. They would go to the doctor, get the requisition, they get the x-rays, they'd have to, have to go back to their doctor to get the report of findings. And then they would try to get a copy of that record to bring to me, or they'd be referred somewhere else to physio and just coordinating care with all of that and the amount of time that would elapse to get the information back to the practitioner who's gonna render treatment. In this case, it was a three-day turnaround. They came in, they saw me, I handed them the x-ray requisition, they got the x-rays that day, and I booked them in two days later when I could pull up their, their films and their report on the computer and we could clear them for treatment and move on. So that's sort of an example of, of you know, how I think it's incredibly beneficial to have a chiro or you know, even if it's a physio, but someone in the medical clinic just being able to um, sort of streamline those processes. In terms of sort of the, the negatives, with regards to patient care, I really can't think of one. I don't think there was any negative that um, slowed down or impeded patient care in any way. The, the challenges were more related to administration. So I'm on a different electronic medical record program than the family doctors. So all your staff have to be trained on both. And, you know, rooms are an issue. So you have to schedule rooms around each other. And, 
you know, there's logistical things, but all of those are, are surmountable with, with training or with time or with scheduling or, you know, you just put in the effort, you can do it. But it, it was all just sort of administrative stuff that needed tweaking. And as I've kind of highlighted, the, the unusual role I found myself in was that patients, because I was in a medical office, they would talk so much more openly about their medical issues, their frustrations with the, the healthcare system, their slow referrals, their oftentimes they would, they would be, come to me very worried and they would say, my doctor said this, but I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? And I found myself so often just explaining and elaborating and, and helping patients to navigate whatever recommendation the physician made in their fairly quick visit, that the patients were too intimidated to talk to their family doctor and say, I don't understand what you're saying. But because of the relationship that I as a chiropractor had with them and because of the time I had in the visit, they were comfortable saying to me, they said this and I don't understand and I'm scared. And so I could break it down for them and we could, we could workshop like how to implement or, or what, what the doctor actually meant. And, and that was also kind of a role I wasn't expecting, um, but was really rewarding. And it helped me to see sort of the broader um, medical need within the community, which led to Andrew and I sort of brainstorming what, what the community needed and what we saw the clinic being able to do for the community moving forward. So we developed a vision for turning this family medicine office into a multidisciplinary teaching facility. And we um, got approval from the other partners within the clinic. And then I became the director of program development. And it's a fancy sounding title that we completely made up, but it's, it was a volunteer position. And so from this point on, this is sort of the area where there are opportunities for chiropractors, I think, to engage with GPs in their community and and serve the community and build those relationships. Obviously, some of the things I did were because I was in a medical community, but some of these can be translated outside. And it's really just, do, do you want to spend the time volunteering in this way? Because there, there are no paid positions like this, but they're so incredibly rewarding. So the, as director of program development, what happened was um, we we pretty much made things up as we went. So Andrew and I had a you know strategic planning session, and the, and what we decided was he would look for funding through Interior Health or other programs, the Division of Family Medicine, and, and see if there was funding to bring people into the clinic. And I would start making relationships with some of these organizations so that once we identified some funding, we could. Um, facilitate bringing another provider into the clinic to provide services in Hunter Mile. So the, the, the idea was, as I said, people in Hunter Mile are usually referred to Williams Lake or to Kamloops for services. But from the standpoint of, you know, healthcare, it's, it's such a burden of care to have to drive that far. You've got kids to think about. You've got the pathology itself. If it's an MSK pathology, driving isn't usually good for it. Um, and then there's the environmental factor, even to think about all of that pollution from driving versus can we bring someone into the clinic once a month or once every two months and then just have them see everyone who has an issue related to their specialty and then thereby reduce some of those burdens overall. So there were uh, four programs that we kind of ended up developing. The first was Andrew identified that there was funding for a registered psychiatric nurse to actually go into clinics and work. And so the goal there was really to reduce barriers of entry to care for people with mental health issues. As we all know, mental health, there, there's a lot of stigma culturally. 
And some, some conditions, those patients are, you know, unfortunately labeled and they'll go to mental health in the hospital because they have no choice or they very desperately need help. But there's a whole breadth of, of other conditions like depression, anxiety, and things that are, are kind of normalized where those patients wouldn't see themselves as someone who, like, I don't want to go to mental health. That's, that's intimidating. That's not right for me. I'm not comfortable with that. But I would go to my family doctor's office and see an, a community care nurse there. So the idea was if we bring her from the mental health um, unit in the hospital, we bring her into the clinic, will it be easier for patients to come see her? And can we facilitate? Because also with a lot of the mental health population, the GP will give a referral, but then the patient doesn't follow through. And so if we can give them the referral, they walk up to the front desk, they book their next appointment with the family doctor and they're booked in to see the mental health nurse right away. Will that improve uh, them coming to their appointments? So that was the goal. And it was, it was a fairly successful program while it ran. We, we tweaked it a lot as it, as it went initially, again, we were playing with um, Andrew was in the visit with the nurse at the same time. So you had the, the family doctor and the nurse together and then in the end, they felt that that wasn't efficient. And so the nurse would see the patients and then they would round at the end of the day. But the idea was that the nurse was both trying to plug them into community resources, uh, review sort of, the nurse had more time with the patient. So she could maybe talk more about the side effects of the medications and, and what's going on in their life and identify ways that they could maybe tweak the pharmacal management, which she then brought to the GP for for co-management managing so that was sort of that program the second program I was working on was getting a clinical pharmacist into the clinic so the goal there is that oftentimes people go to the family doctor and they just get meds added and added and added and added based on their their pathologies and comorbidities and side effects and all this sort of thing and they end up with this soup of medications and they need someone to sit down and really go through it and see what can we cut, what can we combine, what can we change and make it more manageable, again, with that whole sort of deprescribing goal in mind. And people can go to the pharmacist and have that consultation there. Um, they can go to the family doctor and have it done. But again, being in a rural community where we're so underserved, it's very hard for family doctors to find the time to really do a good uh, panel review of the patient's pharma um, pharmaceuticals. So this this idea was completely stolen from the Fraser Health Authority Division of Family Practice because they already had it running there when Andrew was working in New Westminster, and he loved it. So UBC would send a pharmacist out to the clinic. The pharmacist would see patients who were considered polypharm patients. They would do a med review. They would supply that information to the family doctor. And the family doctor would then be able to sort of implement it with a revised plan. And so we were, we were well on our way to getting this done um, when the government change happened. And so with that, the funding model changed. And so we've had to wait for the new funding model uh, through they're putting in some things called primary care networks, which I won't get into, but that's their funding now through that and they're developing it. So we're finally, they're getting developed to the point where this is sort of back on the table as something we could pursue for the community, but it's kind of been on hold, unfortunately. And then the third one was a nurse practitioner. So again, in an underserved community, a nurse practitioner is someone who can fill the void as sort of a, another primary care provider. 
when we're having difficulty recruiting physicians. So uh, we recruited and trained uh, a nurse practitioner student and then pursued funding to have her join the clinic when she graduated. So those were the three sort of programs that I worked with the doctors in the office to develop. But the, the real area that I was focused on was physician recruitment. And this is another area where I think chiropractors in their communities can get involved. And there were a number of different avenues that I, that I worked on there. So in terms of supporting the physicians, one, one major area was education and, and collaboration between them. So a lot of the times, because everyone's working so hard in a rural community, they don't talk to each other. They don't communicate maybe they're having the same issue and frustration in different clinics and they could all work together to solve it, but they're too busy to actually get together and talk about their issues. So one of the things that Andrew and I started doing was coordinating continuing medical education for the community. So we would actually, he identified that there was a fund for bringing CME uh, instructors to the community to actually present evidence-informed information and uh, improve, it improves patient care and it improves, you know, interphysician collaboration. And so we started implementing that. We would bring up different speakers from Toronto or from Vancouver, from the island, and we would put on these continuing education days where we wouldn't just invite the physicians, we would actually invite all, also all the nurse practitioners, all the pharmacists. I got to tag along because I was helping coordinate it. And it brought everyone together, again, sort of fostering a team-based care community. In the last one, we brought up the Therapeutics Initiative, which is this awesome program that um, where physicians and pharmacists go to communities and they educate uh, clinicians on sort of the latest evidence, kind of like what you guys do, but for the medical community. And in the last one that we had up, it was fantastic because one of the physicians came up to the presenter afterwards and said, well, I, I like this de-prescribing idea and I want to engage in, with a pharmacist, but I don't, like, how do I do this? And like, I don't know how to implement it. He was very frustrated. And, and they said, well, you see that group of people over there? Those are all pharmacists. Go talk to them. And so he did. And, they, and he formed a relationship with a pharmacist who said that he would be happy to help him de-prescribe with polypharm patients. And, and so that was something that, that came out of that continuing medical education event. It wasn't just information. It was, it was a relationship that's going to benefit the patients in the community. So then the other piece was training. Andrew got on faculty at UBC for uh, training medical students. So we would have third year medical students come through the clinic and my job was to sort of schedule them and get them settled and develop a, um, a plan for them, an educational plan while they were up here. And what was really fun, I loved this part. This was one of my favorite parts because I love teaching and they were always forced to spend a day with me, <laughs> which, which was very entertaining for me because they would come in with differing degrees of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know, skepticism. So some of them were very already quite pro-chiropractic and like, yeah, you guys are great. I have no problem. And some of them would come and stand against the wall with their arms folded and be like, impress me. So, and it was fun because I would, I would, take on the preceptor role and I, you know, we'd, I would take the history, but then ask them for their input and, and really push them in their understanding of ortho neuro exams. And, and there were multiple reasons to do it. Obviously one is to educate them about the ortho neuro exams they're supposed to know, but also just to, to kind of 
push against their misconceptions about the profession and show them, no, we like we're evidence-based and we have a lot to offer. And, and it was, it was a really rewarding experience. Every single one of them got into it and came away from the wall and wanted to feel stuff and be hands-on and was interested. Two of them even asked if they could do another day with me um, and get, get more into it, get more out of it. And so that was a really fun um, thing to do. And then the biggest piece was physician recruitment. So this is always an issue for a smaller community. And uh, I think being a chiropractor really gave me a unique edge in a lot of ways. Because I don't think any other doctor got a call from a chiropractor to recruit them to a physician position. <laughs> so I think that right there was a little bit unique and interesting. For the most part, all the younger grads and people I talked to were actually really enthusiastic about a multidisciplinary clinic that had a chiropractor in it. So that was very positive. And I think as, as a chiropractor, I understood the patient population because I knew them. They were my patients. I understood the community. I understood what it was like to actually practice and raise a family in the community so I could answer a lot of their questions there. Certainly a lot of the logistical questions about scheduling and hours and remuneration and stuff like that, I knew from um, having a husband who who's a GP and sort of managing his business stuff, but all of that information can be obtained. So I had a really positive experience with the recruitment. I was very, um, it was a very successful sort of campaign. Within one year, we had six site visits when we were budgeted as a community for one and successfully recruited three primary care practitioners. So I worked very closely with the divisions of family practice and they were unbelievably supportive of having me involved. They were, they never sort of balked at me being the wife of a doctor or a chiropractor in the community. They were just so enthusiastic to have other healthcare providers in the community engaging with these doctors to try and sort of draw them to the community. And that is somewhere something that I think other chiropractors, if they wanted to, could do is approach divisions of family practice in your area and just say, hey, you know, if you're ever doing a site visit, I would love to take them around town and just show them, show them the sites and show them the amenities and talk about what it's like to actually live here and work here. And I think that's a really neat way that we can be involved. And the coolest part about it for me is the relationships that I have with the GPs that I was involved in their recruitment or in their sort of settling in, even if I didn't recruit them are so positive like those are the physicians more than the physicians that I've known the longest those are the physicians that that refer and that uh, utilize my skills and then engage in co-management with their patients so it's been a really positive experience both for you know bringing more services into the community but I think also again fostering that you know team-based care model within the community so that was kind of my work prior to April that still kind of bleeds into what I'm doing right now. But hopefully those are some ideas for people about how they can get involved with doctors in their areas. Well, that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned uh, the next area we sort of wanted to delve into is you mentioned, you know, applying the, the, the C-spine rules for that one patient. And you, you mentioned how, you know, the Canadian opioid guidelines are, you know, are get used in your clinic. Um, how, how else do you integrate guidelines or research into, into your practice environment, do you find? There are three, three key areas where I see guidelines as being critically important. And those are patient care, 
uh, physician interactions, like what I was talking about just before, and then the broader sort of healthcare arena. So with regards to patient care, chiropractic is an evidence-informed profession, which means we use the best available evidence, clinician experience, and patient preference. And I feel like any chiropractor walking into their office to treat patients every day is they're flexing their clinician experience and patient preference muscles every day. Every patient interaction, they have to use those two things. So those are really well honed in, in I would say, all practicing chiropractors. The problem is how are we informing and practicing the, the best available evidence piece into our brains? And I, I would argue that using guidelines and reviewing guidelines and being familiar with guidelines is the bare minimum that any practitioner should be doing. Because it used to be, I remember when I graduated, it used to be up to me to like go into PubMed and try to pull up the latest articles and kind of read them and pull out clinical tidbits and synthesize it. It's so easy now with people like you guys who are putting out guidelines and then and then not even just publishing them, but putting so much effort into knowledge translation. There's podcasts, there's social media sites, there's, you know, you've got the videos on the website and you've got all your nice little flow charts. And it's been made so easy that it's, the bare minimum every clinician should do. In terms of physician interactions, you know, you, you guys have talked on your show a lot, of, a, a lot about them being tools and not rules, and it's totally true, but they're also helpful to really know what you know. And when you're talking to a GP who says, why should I refer someone to you? What can you actually offer? Why are you wasting my time? You can have that conversation. You can point them to other resources that, that are easy to digest that says, see, it's not just because I'm saying it. You can know exactly what the evidence says so you can talk to them with confidence about what you're doing. And it really allows you to educate physicians. And I do think it is, it is easier in a small town to do that. But in general, I think it's, it's something that all chiropractors should be doing. And so I think that you know, having those guidelines at your fingertips when you're talking to GPs is really important and helpful. And then in terms of sort of the broader healthcare, guidelines actually inform healthcare regulation, funding, and delivery. Governments, other organizations, ministries, health authorities, divisions of family practice, they all develop funding programs for the best patient care. And it's based on the evidence available to them. And so when there are guidelines coming out that show that, you know, MSK treatment and co-management and things like that are beneficial, that's when funding and decisions are made to facilitate those things. And if we know that's what the patient needs, then we should be supporting sort of the, the programs that will help the patients get that kind of care. And so I think guidelines are really important in that way too, because they, they distill the evidence down into the kind of amount of information that those organizations and governing bodies can use to make decisions. Moving in, the, in a different direction, I, I know that you graduated from Logan, and we have quite a few Canadian listeners who are actually studying in the U.S. right now. What can you tell us about your experience sort of transitioning from a U.S. chiropractic college to, to practicing in Canada? <laughs> yes, that was a long time ago, thankfully. Um, the number one thing is plan ahead. If, you, if you're Canadian or you're, you know you want to go to Canada, you should be planning that out the second you set foot in the States to go to school. 
and just making sure you know the requirements of the province you want to go to and, you know, making sure that your electives and your educational line up. Because if you if you track it from the beginning, I would say it's a very, very smooth process. It's expensive and it's time consuming and it's stressful, but it's smooth. So um, in my case, I did all the U.S. board exams. So there's four mandatory U.S. board exams. There's three Canadian board exams. And I would recommend doing all of them because it keeps your options open. And the U.S. board exams are really good prep for the Canadian ones. The U.S., the, the school that I went to, they actually hired um, like a review service to come in and prep us for the U.S. board exams. And a lot of that information translates. So if you plan it out really well, what, what I did was I always planned to take the Canadian part as close as possible after the sort of analogous U.S. part. So I would do all the studying in the States with all my friends, take those board exams, and then that would really prepare me well for the Canadian exams and made it fairly smooth. Budgeting for the exams is obviously an issue. You have to travel. The exams are very expensive. Um, you have to stay in hotels and stuff. And that that is definitely something to consider when you're, you're you know, making your plans for student loans and things like that. But if you can identify a study buddy and a travel buddy, that can also help sort of take the pressure off. I personally found that, at least in BC, I didn't look at any other provinces, but at least in BC, I found the provincial licensing was pretty... Um, Flexible is maybe the wrong word, but uh, easy to engage with. Because if you have completed all your Canadian board exams and you're actively practicing in the U.S., then you can come back to Canada. So if, let's say you do your Canadian exams, but then you have a gap of three years or more, then a lot of provinces are going to require you to take the, uh, the practice competency exam. So, but if you are practicing in the States, that doesn't happen. So that's kind of what I did. I did all my exams as I was moving through school. I maintained an active license in the States. And then when I came to Canada, they didn't even blink about the fact that it had been three years since I took my Canadian exams. I had the exams, I passed them. I had been actively practicing in the States. And so it was very smooth for them to just accept that and allow me to get my license. The, the reason why I would suggest doing the U.S. board exams beyond just, um, I guess, prepping for the Canadian ones is that when you're studying in the U.S., you're granted a status. It's not actually a visa because Canadians don't need visa, but you're granted F1 status, which means you're a student. You can work on campus for up to 20 hours a week and you have that throughout school. When you graduate from chiropractic college, you can actually apply to have your F1 changed into an OPT, which stands for op Optional Practical Training. And I did look this up because it's been 10 years. Ugh. So I did look it up and it still exists. So I'm, I'm not telling you the wrong thing, but it can be turned into an OPT. And the point of the OPT is that you can work for one more year within the field of your study. And the idea is that during that year, you're applying to get a longer term visa that has to be sponsored by an employer that might be like an H1 visa or something like that. And so I thoroughly recommend doing at least one year of practice in the States for a couple of reasons. One is, again, changing your status is very easy to do. Uh, the, the process, like the application process and getting a visa is, is very simple. And the school actually just sends off a form for you and it's done. It's nothing like trying to get an H-1B. It's a really good opportunity to get some experience 
in a clinic and a, and a jurisdiction that's maybe different from, from, you know, your home province, because practicing in the States is very different than practicing in Canada with, with their healthcare system. And the other really big issue is that it is not a fast process to get your Canadian licensure. So when I took it based on when I graduated, I couldn't take part C of the Canadian exams before I graduated. So there was a gap there and then there's a gap to get your results. And then there's a gap to apply for your license. And then there's a gap to actually get your license. So it ends up being quite a long period of time and it's very stressful and expensive because you have student loans. And so I found that taking that one year in the States gave me all the time I needed to get all of my ducks in a row to come back to Canada. But meanwhile, I'm getting some awesome clinical experience and making a little bit of money and it just took the pressure off the whole situation. So I, I would really encourage you, you know, Canadian students to look into that for sure. And then I think the bigger part is when you come back to Canada, meeting colleagues is hard to do because when you're, when you're in the States, you build a network through your educational program and, and people, you know, professors and things, they know people. And so you have, you have a large collegial network to draw on and, and potentially get referrals to for jobs and things like that. When you come to Canada, you don't have that. You don't have an avenue and you don't, and you don't necessarily know anyone. And so some of the recommendations I would make to sort of combat that would be, first of all, contact your provincial association right away. Uh, become a member. They usually have um, some support services and mentorship things oftentimes for, for new grads coming into the province. So that's a really good way to get some support and some information on, on how to navigate the Canadian system and get set up. I would actually recommend attending the annual conventions and AGMs right away. And I, this is the pot calling the kettle black. I did not do that. And I kind of always told myself too, like, oh, I don't have money. I don't want to do that right now. And you know, what's the point? But that is, I have realized where all the people who are passionate about the profession in your province go. And so it's a great place to meet people. It's a great place to find others who care about the profession, to make connections. It's, it's a really good opportunity to meet people. The same thing can be said for the, the national convention, the CCA convention, but that's, you know, it's more expensive. You have to travel farther and the people you meet aren't necessarily going to be from the province where you're practicing. So the yield maybe isn't quite as high, but still super valuable. And then the other piece would be take continuing education. I know so many Kairos who get out of school and they say, well, I need to make some money before I can take continuing ed, besides which I've been in school all this time. I don't want to do more school. But continuing ed is a great way to network. If you take courses that are, you know, treatment techniques that are of interest to you, you're going to meet local practitioners who are also inter interested in those treatment techniques. Some of them might actually even be hiring. You got student rates. So yes, you don't have money, but it is you know, a lower uh, tuition and it gives you more tools and resources because it's so brutal to come out of school and have to try and differentiate yourself among a bunch, amongst a bunch of seasoned professionals. And so if you can get more tools in your tool belt that you have more ways of helping patients and more ways of standing out, it's going to actually benefit your practice a lot. And, and it keeps your brain sharp. I think I think so many people, they get into practice and they kind of just get into the groove of seeing patients and then maybe they get married and have babies and then they're so out of the education mindset that it's hard for them to, you know, engage back in that. So it keeps your 
it keeps your brain sharp. But mostly, I would say find ways to get involved in the profession and in the community. It's it's such a good way to meet people. It's a good way to meet you know potential patients. It's a good way to find areas that you can serve in that you enjoy serving in, and it's incredibly rewarding. So that would be my advice. I think that's all outstanding advice uh, for any any young practitioner. Well, Larissa, I, I think we've taken up enough of your time. We want to thank you for joining us. It was it was a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, you're very welcome. Um, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in, and we'll, we'll look forward to bringing you our next guest in a few weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>